If you'll open your Bibles, we'll begin in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to do a, a sort of a, just a quick um, view of the book of Philippians as we close it up today. So Philippians chapter 1. So we've made our way through this jam-packed little letter of Philippians. And what started out as a simple thank you letter from the Apostle Paul to this church has, come, has turned into a promise-filled book quoted by millions of Christians around the world in different centuries, cultures, and situations. If I was to take a poll and I was to ask you, how many verses in the New Testament can you quote? No, I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm not making this into some type of memorization uh, B or race or anything like that. But how many verses do you think you could quote from the New Testament? Next question, of those verses that you can quote, how many of them come from this little letter of Philippians? I'd be willing to bet that a lot of them, uh, a good percentage of them for the average Christian come from this single book because there's so many memorable verses uh, that we're going to look at today. Think of what we would have missed out on should the Philippians not have sent their aid to the Apostle Paul. Remember, this letter is in response to their financial gift to him. And so without that gift, we wouldn't have this letter. You ever think about that? Without their faithfulness, without their sacrificial giving, there would be no Philippians. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And so their gift had eternal ramifications, not only for the Apostle Paul, not only for themselves, but for all of us throughout the centuries who've benefited from this letter of Scripture. Isn't it true that the Lord is able to multiply what we give to him? It may not be financially, it may not be that you sow $5 and you get $10 back, right? We've covered that, hopefully, where we realize that's false teaching out there today on the TV and radio. Um, but rather, what we give to the Lord, he's able to bless it and he's able to multiply it. Remember when Jesus took the couple loaves of bread and a couple fish, he blesses it, he multiplies it, and what does he do with it? Does he hoard it for himself? No. He feeds the multitudes, and so through this church's financial gift, he's been able to now feed literally multitudes of people with his word as, as the Apostle Paul writes this thank you letter to the church in Philippi uh, that they gave to him and ultimately to the Lord. Uh, as we begin this letter, again, we're just going to go through the, the first four chapters briefly and cover some main points before we get to the closing section. Uh, we began in chapter 1, verse 6 by seeing that uh, God is faithful to complete what he started in our lives. Isn't that good news? Did you ever get down on yourself because you realize you're not what you want to be in Christ? That maybe your Christian experience is not what you want it to be or what you hope it to be. Maybe you have some good days where you're on fire for Christ. You're reading your word. You're praying. You're sharing your faith with others. You're seeking him. And then you go through those other times in your experience where maybe you forget to have that morning devotion and Life just happens and you get busy and you start going through the motions. You start running on empty and then you, you begin to realize that you're acting in the flesh. Maybe you lose it with someone or you're on edge and you're just grouchy. You know, that happens to the best of us. And if you base your experience on you and your faithfulness, you will be very roller coastery, if that's a word. <laughs> roller coaster like. How's that? Your life will be a bunch of ups and downs, ups and downs, because your faithfulness most likely is going to be up and down, up and down. But the Lord's faithfulness is always constant, isn't it? And, and as Paul thinks about this church in Philippi, as he thinks about their beginnings and how he led many of these people to Christ, how they uh, saw the church grow as they supported his ministry through the years, he was confident that he who has begun a good work in them will complete it till that day. And so notice Paul's confidence is not in the church in Philippi. As much as they've been a blessing to him, his confidence is in the Lord and his ability to finish what he starts. I like that, that God finishes what he starts. Isn't that good? The fact that even Jesus on this earth, what were some of his last words on the cross? It is finished. He finished what he came to do. He always finishes what he starts. And we know that he's going to finish what he started, even with our redemption. We know that when we pass on, we will see him face to face. We will receive glorified bodies. 
and he will be faithful to do his part. And what, what peace, what rest that gives the believer, knowing that we have a God who is faithful to always, always, always perform what he says he'll do. We also saw that God uses our every circumstance to further the good news of Jesus. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see the Apostle Paul's chains resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. How did he do that? Well, this was a man on a mission. And we know in verse 20 that he desired Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. It didn't matter to Paul whether he lived or died. His view was that his life would magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. That's how he was able to have the perspective that he has in this book. This book is a book of joy. You realize that? How many times has he told us to rejoice in the Lord, right? He's in jail. He's in prison. He's waiting his trial. There's uncertainty in his life. He's going to go before Caesar, who is not very pleasant to Christians. He doesn't know if his head will be handed in a, in a platter like, like John the Baptist. He doesn't know what awaits him. And yet he realizes that to live is Christ, but to die is gain, we see in chapter 1, verse 21, right? How can he say these things, to, to, whether by life or by death, to, to, that Christ would be magnified, to live as Christ and die as gain? Well, I believe the key is the fact that the Apostle Paul has already died. This man before us has already died to himself. Why? So that he could finish his race well. See, he didn't count his life dear to himself, he'd tell us in other letters, so that he could finish his race well. He, he had already surrendered his life to Christ. And so whether he lived or died, it really didn't matter to him. And his conclusion again, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think as we look at that statement, doesn't the second part depend on the first part? See, if to live is anything other than Christ, then to die is loss. I challenge you, write this statement out sometime, just as you go before the Lord, maybe in your morning devotion time, your prayer time, just write the sentence, to live is blank and to die is blank. What are you living for? What are the things in this world that you give your heart to? I promise you, no matter what you put in that first blank, to live is blank. If it's anything other than Christ, to die will be lost. Even good things. Even family, right? We love our families. I love my wife. I love my kids. But I realize I can't keep them. I can't hold on to them. I can't always be there with them. I can't always be there to protect them. And if I try to hold on to things, even precious things, good things in this life, if, if my life at the end of the day circles just around those things, as good as they may be, then to die is loss. Only if you put Christ in that first part of the statement is to die gain. Why? Because if Christ is my treasure, if, if to live is Christ, if he is at the center of everything, including our families and our church, then to die is to be in his presence. You realize that? Then to die is to be face to face with the one who my life surrounds. And therefore, guess what? It's gain for me. Have you met believers on their deathbed excited to meet their savior? Most of the world looks at that and says, this is crazy that this person is excited to die. What, what's up with this? I mean, we know the fear of death. We know the enemy uses the fear of death to bring people into slavery, right? Many of us were in that place at one point or another where people are terrified to die. If you don't believe me, look at what people are doing to their bodies to try to make themselves look younger. What are people injecting into their lips and the face? And, you know, you kind of get that look to try to make yourself appear to be younger. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter how you appear. We know 10 out of 10 people die. And the fear of death, it, it, it captivates people. It causes people to search in and out. How can I avoid this situation? And it's not, not that we're, as believers, it's not that we're looking, you know, for death. Like, hey, here I am, come find me. It's not that I'm excited to die, so to speak, in the sense of how I'm going to die. I, no one knows that. But, to, but, but if Christ is my life, then to die is gain because I will be 
face to face with my Lord and my Savior. I will receive a glorified body at that point. I will not struggle anymore with the aches and pains, with sin, with doubt, with all the things that, that we are in struggle with. And so the Apostle Paul could write these things. He could finish his course well. He could have Christ magnify in his body, whether by life or by death, because to live for him is Christ. And everything in his life revolved around Jesus. Now the Philippians, and we as well, we'll see in verse 29, are granted not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. You ever see that on one of the coffee mugs? That you've been granted not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Is that one of those ones we see on the beautiful calendars at this time of year when, you know, everyone, it's the New Year's coming, so you get your calendar, you get your nice Christian one, it has the beautiful scenery on it and has the verses underneath, maybe. Do you ever see that one on one of those Christian calendars? I, I've never seen that. But I promise you this, if you lived in a country where there was severe persecution, this would be one of those verses highlighted in your Bible. Because you would understand the honor it is to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. You see, as these believers are taking a stand and saying no to Caesar as Lord and yes to Jesus as Lord, Paul's warning them suffering is coming. But remember when Jesus said how blessed it is when we actually are suffer, that we suffer for his sake, right? That there's this blessing upon the person who goes through persecution for his name's sake. Think of it this way. If I'm persecuted for Jesus, Whose name am I being tied with? Who am I being associated with? What greater honor than for people to say, when I look at Luke, when I look at you, you're tied to Christ and to connect you with Christ. See, this is the mentality of many Christians all around the world as they daily suffer persecution for their faith in Jesus. I remember as a new believer, my pastor, his, his son married a girl from China, from the underground church. He went over on a missions trip to China, met her, fell in love, they get married, and she comes to the States. And I'll never forget the first time I meet this woman, she gets up in front and just you know, speaks to the congregation about life in China. And she said, you know, persecution was good for my soul. Since I've come to America and I haven't had that, I've kind of gone, I've coasted a little bit in my walk with Christ. I haven't had to face the hardships that we face in China on a daily basis. And I can, I'm becoming lukewarm. And I'll never forget those words. Persecution is good for my soul. It's a new believer. That thing just rang in my ears. What? <laughs> I don't even want people to make fun of me for my faith in Jesus, let alone to suffer persecution, maybe loss of property or even loss of life for a loved one. And I can only imagine if, if you're a persecuted church and you say we've been granted not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Isn't that the response of the disciples when they were forbidden from speaking in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts? How they, they counted it a blessing to be counted worthy be persecuted for the name of Jesus, just to represent our Savior and our King. I don't say this as a prophet. I don't say this in any way uh, foretelling the future, but the way things are going in our country, I, I believe that you know, this is coming to this nation. And I believe that as you see our country becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith, I think it's going to do a couple things. I think, number one, it's going to sift the church and when I mean church, I don't mean the true church. I think the, the, the big church, I think that you're going to see the make-believers and the true believers being sifted a little bit by the Lord. But I also think it will have a sanctifying effect on the body of Christ as well. And that is usually the case uh, throughout church history, that when difficulty arises in the church, the church gets desperate for Jesus. And he's always faithful to be present in the fire. He may not always deliver us from persecution, but he promises us to be there with us. And I, I think that's why the Apostle Paul could write these things, because even in the midst of his trial that he's going through and the uncertainties that he's facing, who was still with him? Jesus. And I think that he experienced the presence of Christ. We see glimpses of this in the book of Acts. Even the Apostle Paul had doubts, right? 
There were times when he felt alone. There were times when he was fearful. And wasn't God faithful to speak to him individually when he felt those ways? We also see that we were exhorted not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind to esteem others as better than himself or oneself. That's in chapter 2, verse 3. Anyone come na- Does that come natural to anyone here? To let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Were you just born that way? No, obviously this is a work that Christ has to do. Now, how could Paul say that? How can we come to that mind? Because he exhorts us then in verse 5, to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In verses 6 through 11, we see what I believe to be the very heartbeat of this entire letter, which is what? The great emptying of the Son of God before us. God becoming man, emptying himself, becoming obedient as a man, as a bondservant to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And in this text, it actually highlights the death of the cross, even the death of the cross. Because this was not something to be exalted in this day. You did not exalt in a cross if you were uh, a first century person. A cross was an instrument of violent and painful death. It was as if in our day we would have a a church building erected and then there behind the pulpit you would have a big uh, uh, electric chair. Or maybe on the pulpit, uh, on front of the pulpit, an electric chair. Can you imagine going to a church and people celebrating an electric chair? It'd be kind of weird. But yet that's what we do as believers because the cross was an instrument of death and not even for Roman citizens. These Philippians were Roman citizens. They were proud Roman citizens. Therefore, they would not be eligible for this meaning, menial way of death. And yet here, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the God of the universe took on flesh and blood, what we're celebrating now at Christmas time, and he died the most horrible, painful, but also demeaning form of death known to man, the death of the cross. And because of that, it says here that what? God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those of heaven and earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see Jesus after he is buried, risen, and ascended to heaven, he seats at the right hand of the Father. This is the place of highest honor. And remember when, Jesus, when the Father spoke to Jesus twice, and he said, this is my beloved Son, right? In whom I'm well pleased. See, that's, that's a moment that we see in Jesus' life where the Father says this, but as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, do you realize for eternity That is as if the father's declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was faithful. He finished the course. He did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He constantly had lowliness of mind and esteemed others as better than himself. And this is God doing this for us. Isn't that incredible? We don't serve a God who's distant. We don't serve a God who doesn't understand what we go through. We serve a God who took on humanity to its fullness the fullness even of death, and now is highly exalted. And if, if there's anything in Philippians that you want to meditate on, that you want to circle, that you want to underline, highlight, and memorize, please let it be these verses. Because if we get these verses, 5 through 11, I think we'll get the rest. If your life circles around verses 5 through 11, you will be a mature believer in Jesus Christ. I promise you. And he will work these things out. Now, what happens after we bow our knee to Jesus willingly? He gives us his spirit. And now we're exhorted in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, he did not say work for your salvation. If anyone ever teaches you that, then run. We do not work for our salvation. Jesus finished the work. What did he say? It is finished. So the work is finished, but yet... There is a part that we play, and that is working out our own, our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, how can we work this salvation out? We see God does something first. It's he that works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God's the initiator here. He works in you first. 
what he desires for your life. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you what? The desires of your heart. That does not mean that he gives you anything you want. What it does mean, though, is when I delight myself in the Lord, when I put him first in my life, when I delight in Jesus, then his desires for my life, his plan for my life becomes my desire. It becomes a joy to serve him. For example, this time last year, if you would have told me that I'd be standing in Cumberland, Maryland, teaching the word of God, moving to Cumberland, Maryland, and loving it, I would have told you you were crazy. In fact, most people that I tell that I'm moving to Cumberland, they, they say, why are you moving to Cumberland? We're, everyone's moving out of Cumberland, and you're moving in. What's up with that? But I'll, I'll tell you what. One of the amazing things, when God calls you, he gives you a love and a desire for where he calls you. So if he's going to call you to China, guess what he's going to do? He's going to give you a burden for the people of China. In fact, it's going to be a burden to where you're not comfortable anymore where you're presently at. Whatever it is, whatever he's calling you to do, he gives us that will to do it. But he doesn't leave us there because this would be a real bummer if he said, all right, I'm going to give you this desire because I called you to do this. And then he just leaves you hanging to do it in your own strength and in your own ability. Wouldn't that stink? Like you have this burden, this desire, but there's no ability to carry it out. That would be horrible. That'd be worse than giving us, than giving us no desire. But he doesn't stop there. It's him who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he gives us the desire, but he gives us the ability then to carry that desire out. And it's all by his power and all by his spirit, all by his strength that he does it. You ever hear they're saying that God doesn't give you more than you can handle? You ever hear that? You ever quote that to someone? I actually have, but it's not true. Because he does give you much more than you can handle on your own. But it's his spirit who works in us and through us. And in our weakness, what? His strength is perfected. His power is perfected in our weakness. And so God will call you to things that you cannot possibly do in your own strength. I hope you understand that. But he will supply your every need. Whatever it is that you need to follow through with that, he will give you the grace, the strength, the wisdom to do so. Now, an example of allowing the Spirit of God to work in our lives, he gives us in verses 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Right? This is a good verse for your spouse. Um, we, we don't think of ourselves usually when we read this. We, we like to think of those who complain and dispute. And so it's always someone else's fault. Um, but do all things without complaining or disputing. Now, I will say, don't give this in a Christmas card. If you're writing a Christmas card to someone... Probably not the best thing to write. But isn't it true that the people of God have struggled with this for centuries, including all of us? Uh, in, the, in, in the original language in verse 14, it could be translated, do all things without murmuring. And I think that's definitely a, a look back to the nation of Israel and they're murmuring in the wilderness. And here's the catch. If the people of God will just do this, no complaining or disputing, then we become these lights in the world and our light will shine in this dark and perverse generation. Literally, we will become luminaries or stars in the midst of the very dark, perverse generation. If you want to be practical about it, when you're at work, how much do your coworkers complain? Do they murmur? Do they whine? Do they complain about the boss and how the boss doesn't know what he's doing or she doesn't know what she's doing, right? And just by not complaining, we become a light in that place. Now, people may also start to call you other names, too, if you stop complaining with them. And they'll think that you suck up and everything else. Um, but that's par for the course as we become different, salt and light, that we're not like the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Later in chapter 2, he would also commend Timothy for his willingness to go anywhere and do anything for the cause of Christ. And he had no one that was like-minded like Timothy. Timothy was willing to risk his life to travel hundreds of miles when no one else was, all for the sake of the betterment of others. Also Epaphroditus who risked his life. Just bringing this gift of the Apostle Paul, Epaphroditus almost died, and yet the Lord had mercy on him. We get to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we are warned about those who put their confidence in the flesh and in themselves in anything other than the gospel or on top of the gospel. 
And we saw Paul is the epitome of the flesh. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Benjaminite. He was a stock of Israel. He was a, of the law of Pharisee, right? He was perfect when it came to the flesh. And yet, what, he, what did he say? When he compared that, which he formally put his trust in, to knowing Christ, he considered it to be dung, to be refuse, to be garbage, to be nothing. It wasn't that these things were bad, but the fact that they had their place in his heart where they shouldn't not have, that he put his trust in these outward things, things that did not make him right with God. But yet when he come to, came to know Jesus Christ, oh, nothing compares to knowing Jesus, right? Nothing compares. And you know, for the believer, you can say that, and it sounds foreign to the non-believer. Yeah, to know Jesus, I mean, he, might, he was a great historical figure. No, he's Lord. He's everything. He's my savior. He's my brother. He's my friend. He's my Lord. He's my God. He's the great I am. Before Abraham was, he said, I am. He's God in the flesh. That these magi came and worshiped before him. That the shepherds came and worshiped before him. He's made himself real to me, known to me, the God of the universe. And when I compare everything that I put my trust in before him, it's nothing compared to the excellency of knowing him. And Paul said in verse 10 of chapter 3 that what was his goal in life? That I may know him. This was the Apostle Paul's goal. And listen, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. This is the guy who literally got knocked off his horse, has this vision of Christ, is saved in the most dramatic way possible, wouldn't it have been easy for him to just live off of that experience the rest of his life? And, and, you know, maybe his ministry was nothing other than this experience. Do you ever meet someone that's all they talk about is this one experience that happened? And maybe their whole ministry is built on this one experience? Yet he did not live from that experience. That's amazing to me. He told it three times in the book of Acts, but there were purposes why he shared his testimony. But he didn't live from his testimony. His goal presently as he's writing this letter, as an aged saint, as a, as a believer who's mature in Christ, he's saying, look, I've not arrived. I want to know Jesus more than I ever have before. And he understood that in knowing him, there, you, you experience this power of resurrection in your life. It's not just a head knowledge, right? The Christian faith is not just knowing the facts and stating a formula. It's literally knowing the risen king and having him live inside of us. It's experiencing resurrection power, but here's the catch. Notice he doesn't just say about the power of the resurrection. Oh, there's also this fellowship of suffering. Because he understands in order to experience resurrection, what has to come first? See, death. Everyone wants a resurrected life. Everyone wants a new life. If you pulled hundred people out on the streets of Cumberland and said, would you like a new life? I think most people would say, oh man, if I could have another crack at this, sure, why not? But death always has to come before resurrection. There's fellowship though in the sufferings. There's fellowship. There's this intimacy with Jesus that is, if I was to ask all of you, what is the most intimate time you've ever had with Jesus? I'd be willing to bet that many of us, it would be in periods of suffering in our life the difficulties that we've gone through when Jesus Christ showed himself to be faithful, to be there, right? And sometimes we talked about this, that resurrection power, it's not always the big bang. Sometimes it's the steady power of God day in and day out in the mundane things of life, his strength, his power. Sometimes for some people, it's just getting out of bed, literally, being able to stand up, being able to use the restroom for themselves. Sometimes resurrection power comes in little doses, but it's still God's power in our life. Why? So that we can be conformed to Christ. And as Paul goes on to say this, he understands that in verses 12 through 16 that there is a gap, though. Though he wants to know Jesus in his fullness, and as he wants to be conformed to the image of Christ, there is a gap between who he was presently and where he wanted to be. Paul had not arrived. That's of great uh, encouragement to me. Because when I read Paul, I would think, man, if I was just like this guy, man, I'd be, I'd be happy. 
But he wasn't happy because he understood he wasn't still yet completely formed into the image of Jesus. He hadn't arrived. And so he likens all of our experience as a race, right? An individual race for all of us. And listen, this is a long-distance race, and I'm thankful for that, because if it was a sprint, if your Christian experience was a sprint, then how you got off those blocks is all that would matter. The first couple months of your Christian life, that would be it. If it was a short sprint, because that's what matters in a sprint. But no, it's a race of endurance. It's a long-distance race. And you know what's very interesting is you have an individual race that God's laid before you. You can't run your spouse's race. You can't run your children's race. You can't run anyone else's race, and no one else can run your race. Sometimes we get confused and we get, you know, looking at one another. Remember when Jesus told Peter by what manner he would die? And what was his first response? Well, who's he point to? <laughs> Points to John, right? What about him? What about him, Lord? What's his race? Don't you worry, right? Don't worry if he's still around when I come back. It's not that he said he would be. But we have a f tendency of focusing on other people's races. You have a race that God has laid before you, an individualized race. And he's done it specifically for you. But he helps, wants to help us with our race. He told us in chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our race is going. That's where we're heading right now, right? So if you view your citizenship in heaven, it'll help you run lightly on this side of eternity. He also told us that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to transform our lowly bodies. Praise God, in the midst of this race, we stumble at times, don't we? We get tired, we get frustrated, we want to give in and wave the flag at times. But he's reminding us that this body is just temporary. And Jesus is coming back and he's going to give you a new body, a heavenly body that won't wear out and get tired. And apparently not all was perfect in this church. It was a pretty good church, but we did see in chapter 4 two women who were having issues with one another, Yodia and Syntyche. And these ladies had some type of friction, and so the, he implored them to have the same mind in the Lord. And I think if you remember back to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, isn't that the mind that we want to exhort one another to have, especially in the midst of friction? If you are married and you're having friction in your marriage, if just one of you would have the mind of Jesus Christ, the Philippians 2, 5 through 11 mind, imagine how far that would go in dealing with conflict. Because if one of us dies, either the person's going to fight by themselves or they're going to give up, right? It takes two to tango. So to have the mind of Christ, he exhorts these ladies in the midst of their friction. He also told us in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Checking to make sure you're paying attention here, right? <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because he's always faithful. He's always trustworthy. He's always rejoiceable. <laughs> we can always rejoice in him because he's always the same. Praise the Lord. He's always good. He's always trustworthy. He's always faithful. He always tells the truth. And therefore, be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. And what do we find out? The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So as you face situations that make you anxious, pray, seek him. And finally, set your mind on the whatevers of verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. Remember those whatevers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, just, pure, lovely, good report. The things that you focus on, the things that you meditate on and you fill your mind with, you are what you eat, spiritually speaking. If you feed your mind with the things of this world, the things of the flesh, I promise you, you will live a life of this world. You will live a life of the flesh. But what are you listening to? What are you hearing? What are you thinking about? We're told to take every thought captive, right? Cast down those thoughts that we know don't exalt Jesus Christ, that want to creep in there. And fill your mind with good things, true things, noble things. The battle is in the mind. And so, whew, that's our introduction this morning. Um, we also saw the last couple weeks Paul's uh, thanksgiving for their gift. So we get to verses 21 through 23. That's actually our, our text this morning. We'll only be another half hour to an hour. Um, 
I don't know why people always laugh at that one. That one's funny, I know. One of these times, someone's going to make that true, though, right? It won't be me, I promise, but one of these times, you're going to have a pastor say that as a joke and then follow through with it just to see if people are still laughing at the end. Um, wouldn't want to be that pastor. So, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Now, real quick as we look at this verse, I think we, we have a tendency to kind of skip over these closing remarks, right? In fact, that was, that was the temptation I had last week. We had chugged through this entire letter, uh, got to the end of verse 20. We've been speaking about 45 minutes, and, and you know, there's a thought. Just, just read through it and close in prayer. But isn't it true, especially if you think about when you've written letters to people, think of a love letter that maybe you've written. And in that letter, isn't it true that we sometimes save the best for last? Isn't it true that at the end of the letter, we're not just saying words to say words. We, we mean what we say, and we want to maybe conclude things. We want to wrap things up, or we maybe want to say one last important thing right before we close that letter. Don't we do that by nature? Isn't it true that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable? And that every word of God is pure and flawless and tested and found to be true? And how convicted I am that so often when I get to these last couple sentences in a letter, I just read through them to get done with the book. I'm convicted by that. And I pray that if you don't get anything else from me, you will see that every word of God is flawless. Every single word in this book is his word. It's fully breathed out by him. It's fully inspired by him. Never neglect even the simplest of terms in this book. You will find the more you dig into the word of God and you look at even the little things, every jot and every tittle is there by design of the Father. And so may I never, by just breezing through the last couple verses, teach informally that the last couple verses don't matter. That's that's my conviction, honestly, as I, I go through this text of Scripture. And so greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now, at this point, Paul usually greets all the saints together as one body or as a a whole. He might just say greetings to the body. And and so the idea would be that we greet everyone in one uh, swoop, in one saying. But here, he's not saying to just say a single greeting from the pulpit. Rather, he wants to greet every individual believer. In other words, he wants me to say, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Bobby. Greetings. All of you, and if I was to go through every single one of your names, Doug, right, Brian. And he's making it personal. This is unique to their setting and to their day and age. And the point, I think, is that God speaks to us individually, doesn't he? Though we meet together as a group, he speaks to us individual, as individuals. Now, it is significant of how God communicates to his people. Does he communicate to the whole group? Yes, absolutely. Does he communicate individually? I think when we look at the history of Israel and when we look at the history of the church, I think that sometimes you'll see that we are usually stronger in one area or the other. Uh, In Jewish history and in most of church history, typically it's been more about gathering uh, of God's people together to hear the word of the Lord. Remember after the Israelites were gathered together after Babylon and they're back in the land. And what does Ezra do? They gather all the people and and they start reading from the book. They start reading from the Torah. And the people are there as a multitude and they're giving them the sense of the word and they're convicted by the word. And so we see this gathering taking place. Uh, You you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament and you see the uh, beginning of the synagogue. There was a lot that took place in those 400 years between testaments. The, 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 The Judaism and the The Israel that Jesus inhabited in the New Testament was very, very different from the Judaism of the Old Testament. Please understand, they were very different worlds. A lot took place between those periods of time. And so you have the synagogue beginning to happen, and you have the people gathering together at the local synagogue. Why? To hear the word of the Lord. Um, Or in church history, you see, again, that the emphasis most times in church history was not on the individual. 
Most times in church history, it was on the whole collective group of people. Now, why? Why, why was the emphasis on the whole group of people? I think there are different reasons. I think, for one, when you look at the expense of scrolls and papyri, um, it was very rare for people to actually have scripture themselves. A couple, couple weeks ago, Rob went over uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that, those of you who were here? And what, did the, what was the Ethiopian eunuch reading when, when Philip comes and he meets him? He was reading from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 53. Well, the fact that he had a scroll tells us this man was very wealthy. He was well-to-do to have that in his possession, because the average person to hear the word of God, you, you had to go, if you wanted to literally read a scroll, you had to go to the synagogue to get that scroll. And so the expense kept people from having the word of God themselves individually. We also see one's view of church government. If the priest or the rabbi is the only person who can correctly interpret the scriptures for you, then you're probably going to rely on him. And you're going to rely then on going to the congregation to hear, again, the word of God and it expounded. Um, and so what has changed? And as I thought through church history, I think there's some different things that have happened so that we've seen this shift take place from the con congregation to the individual. I think, number one, we've had wonderful saints who've given their lives for the common person to have access to the scriptures. Do you realize that there was great resistance to allow the scriptures to be interpreted in every man's language. That the church did not want people to be able to read the Bible in English. Keep it in Latin so that the average Joe can't read it and they're dependent upon the priests to, to interpret and read the scriptures. And so we've had faithful saints throughout the ages interpret the scriptures in people's languages so that they can read. We've also seen the invention of the printing press, right? Gutenberg. Remember the first book, what was the first book that Gutenberg had published? I'll give you a hint. Starts with a B, ends with an E. <laughs> the Bible. Around the 1450s, he printed the Bible. We also have the Protestant Reformation taking place. Sola Scriptura, the emphasis on the Bible alone as, as the sole authority for the church. And so there's this emphasis on the word of God. There's also this availability for the word of God. You realize today, if you were to go to the Dollar Tree, the Dollar Tree, you can get a King James Bible. If you have a smartphone, you don't even need a dollar. You can just download the app, the Bible app. And for free, you have the word of God at your fingertips literally today. Amazing what we have. Later, we would also see the emphasis on the, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We realize Jesus is our high priest. He's the only high priest we need, right? And so there's this priesthood of all believers. We all have access to the Lord. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so the emphasis of these doctrines have all been great. They've all been good. And then you have the evangelical faith, which emphasized the personal need for salvation and one to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the personal sin of that individual. And again, all these things are biblical, I believe. They're all necessary. They're all needed. But I would say in the last couple decades, despite all these good things, I think we've seen uh, American individualism creeping up within the church this Lone Ranger Christianity, where it's just Jesus and me, and I don't need the body, really. You know, I got my Bible. I can stay at home. I got my Bible. I can pray, right? I mean, there's, there's God. He hears my prayers, and I got my Bible, and I, I'm sufficient, just me and Jesus. My question is, do you see that mentality at all in the whole Bible, Old Testament or New Testament? No. Rather, you see this balance between the congregation and God speaking to the congregation and the individual, God speaking to the individual. In fact, there are books like the book of Ephesians, Wayne covered uh, on Thursday night. The book of Ephesians is a book of plurality, meaning that it speaks to the whole congregation. And it shows us that there's a sanctification that takes place in the body as a whole. Okay. In other words, you will not be completely sanctified in the manner that you would be if you're a Lone Ranger Christian compared to a Christian that congregates in a, in a body of believers. And not just come on Sunday type of thing, because anyone can just sit. What's the difference whether I watch a sermon on TV 
or I come to church on Sunday and I just, you know, I have no real relationships. No, there has to be body life, body ministry. Here's something to think about. Imagine if a Philippian believer decided, you know what? I don't really feel like attending that church anymore in Philippi. And the day before, they decided that the day before this letter got to the church. Imagine what that individual would have missed out on. That's just me and Jesus. Yeah. Oh, but his word and his people and how he speaks to the congregation, right? The truth is this. We must not neglect either of them. And here in verse 21, this is actually in a culture that was opposite of ours. This was not an individualistic culture like ours is today. And so when he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, this was a very, very personalized greeting that would have really uh, been magnified in the ears of these uh, believers. And notice how he describes every one of them, ultimately every one of us. Does he call them, he calls them saints, doesn't he? Anyone feel like a saint usually? Doesn't, it's not the, how we feel, it's what God's word says we are, right? And so he's reminding us again the importance of understanding our identity where? In Christ Jesus. We live from this identity. And he started this in chapter 1. He called them saints. And he's closing it this, this morning by reminding us of who we are in Christ. We are saints. We are set apart for him. We have been declared holy. And as we minister to the men in our broken chains ministry, you know, this is one of the big differences between the ways of the world when it comes to addiction and the ways of Christ. The world says you will always be an alcoholic, an addict. This is, and this becomes your identity. But the Bible says, so were some of you. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were justified. And so in Scripture, we're told your identity is in Jesus now, not in your former sins, right? You ever meet someone who identifies they're a Christian. Hi, I'm Luke. I'm a kleptomaniac. I'm an idolater. That's who I was before Christ, but he came and he revealed himself to me, and he's declared me to be a new creation in him. And so now he's calling us as saints to live from this identity. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the source of our life. He's the one who sets us apart and the one our lives are heading towards. The brethren who are with me greet you. And so those who are with Paul while he's in chains, verse 22, all the saints greet you. And that could include every saint that he's met along his journey, meaning the inclusion of all the body of Jesus Christ, right? The church is big. It's not just Calvary Chapel Cumberland. The church is made of very different denominations and multitudes and ways of worshiping the Lord. Though I think once we go in the Lord's presence, I don't think that any of that's going to matter, right? Because I think as we stand before our Lord, we're not going to stand very long. I think we're going to fall to our faces and worship him at his feet. And so all the saints greet you. But note this at the end of verse 22. This is significant. But especially those who are of Caesar's household. Especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now, here's my question. How did Caesar's household come to faith in Christ? How did they come to faith in Christ? He doesn't say, but I, how, think of it this way. How could those so close to Caesar, who, remember, is declared Lord, come to find Jesus Christ as the Lord? And I, I think part of the answer has to be in chapter 1, verse 12. Because he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And so I believe, this is just my opinion, I mean, these believers, some of them could have been before Paul got there to Rome, but I believe that through his imprisonment, he had access to people that were otherwise unaccessible because the average person doesn't have access to the king's family, right? If you want to go meet the, I don't know, the, the first lady, and the Trump family, you can't just stroll into the White House and say, hey, I'm here to meet the, the First Lady today. You have to be invited. You have to have access to certain people, especially when you get high up. And so I believe through Paul's imprisonment, he has access to people of higher status. I love what Gordon Fee says. He says regarding Paul, he said, let him loose 
and he will be among those who turn the world upside down for Christ. Incarcerate him too close to home, and he will turn Caesar's household upside down as well. See, that was Paul's view, whether by life or by death, that Christ be exalted. And what did Christ do? He opened up opportunities for him to share the gospel to people who maybe never otherwise would have ever heard the gospel. Now, again, why is this significant for the Philippians? Remember, the Philippians may be giving their lives because they're declaring Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And here, it's as if Caesar's household is saying, we're with you, brothers and sisters. We are part of the household, whether they were slaves, whether they were his physical family, we don't know. But here we are with you in Jesus. Fight the good fight. Finish well. We greet you, even we who are part of Caesar's household. The bottom line is this. Paul went behind enemy lines to declare the true Lord in the heart of the Roman Empire. And now these saints want to encourage the Philippians who will suffer persecution for declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. And finally, in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How does he conclude it? Well, the same way that he began this epistle. He began it with grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 2. And he ends it with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Isn't it true that the Christian life starts with the grace of God, is sustained by the grace of God, and will be completed by the grace of God? And what a, forming, what a perfect way, bookends, if you will, that this little letter starts and ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that his grace would be with all of you, that you would not just know his grace through head knowledge, that you would literally experience his grace in your life, that you would comprehend his grace, an amazing grace at that, that the God of the universe would be willing to grant us salvation because of what his son has done for us, not because of what we've done for him. That's grace, unmerited favor. Actually, mercy is what, what we, not, God not giving us what we deserve, right? We deserve punishment. We deserve to be judged for our sin. We deserve hell, if you will. But grace is God's unmerited favor. He not only doesn't give us what we deserve, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us salvation. He gives us free gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, I pray, as we close this word out. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this little book that just has so much in it. For the people who you used to bring about this book, Lord, the Philippians, how at some point, Father, you moved on their hearts to gather a collection of, of money, Lord, to, to bring it through Epaphroditus to the Apostle Paul while he's in chains. Lord, you, in, you instrumented that, Lord. You, you brought that to pass. And how you moved then on the Apostle Paul to write this thank you letter to this church. And through their gift, Lord, we've been benefactors. But ultimately, Father, through your gift, Lord, that is how we've been the greatest benefactors, Lord, of grace. And so, Father, we pray as, as you've opened our eyes, as you've helped us to see Jesus, that, Lord, we would run the race that you've set before us individually, Lord, that we would work, walk out our own salvation, that we'd work it out, Lord, with fear and trembling, that we would allow you to live in and through us, Father, that we wouldn't look back on the things that are behind us, Lord, that we'd press forward for the goal of the upward prize, Lord, of the call. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would just continue to take this little book of Philippians, transform us, Lord, and prepare us for the glory that awaits. May you receive all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.